Thank you for downloading this podcast from Awakening Church. Hey, I want to make another announcement. I want to invite you guys to something that um, I think is going to be amazing. April the 5th and 6th um, in Wilmore, Kentucky on... All right, then. Just mute them, not me. Thanks. we're going to meet at on Asbury's campus uh, for Mosaic. Mosaic is a vision in the heart of Rick Curry um, to unite leaders across Kentucky for the cause of awakening. And um, it, it's been building for about a year. And um, so now he, he's doing some gatherings. And, and this one is going to be very strategic, I believe. Um, there's going to be a man there by the name of Dr. Robert Coleman, who wrote a book that some of you may be familiar with called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Um, it's an amazing book. It is um, absolutely um, strategic in regard to um, evangelizing. As a matter of fact, it was so impactful that he was a part of the Billy Graham Association. Um, They invited him. So here's what's happened. They found out Dr. Coleman, who's in his 90s now, is going back in. They thought he was too old to do anything. They found out that he's getting back into some stuff. And Billy Graham Association is sending Franklin Graham's son to Mosaic uh, to be there. So I want to invite you. Um, everyone is welcome. April the 5th and 6th, uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, on the campus there. So um, we'll be going. Uh, so, so get together if, if, if you want to know uh, how to get there and all of that good stuff. See me and it's going to be good. Okay. Amen. So I know the birds are flying around and we're going to have to fight for focus today. Honestly, I'm just waiting to see who it descends on like a dove. And uh, then we'll know that you're the one and I will immediately pass the mic right then. So I just just want you to know that. Be ready if it descends on you like a dove. Here it comes. (laughs) That's awesome. Stephanie Chorus, it is so good to see you today. I love you, girl. So glad that you could be with us. Stephanie is an amazing leader in our city, and I'm just always uh, so honored and thrilled when she gets to come. So uh, just uh, make yourself at home. We're glad you're here. I'm glad all of you are here. So here's today, um, I've got some stuff that I I think I want to talk about. Um, uh, And I I know I want to talk about it. I just don't know if if I can real well. So... um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something that I never do. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do, okay? Because sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to do. But I'm going to tell you right now. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to read some scripture, and I'm going to tell you two stories, and then I'm going to read a story from history to you, and, and we'll just see what the Lord wants to do today, okay? That, that's, that's what I'm at. So uh, we're going to go into Genesis. And uh, in prayer meeting this week, uh, man, Rebecca mentioned it already. It was really, really good. Uh, just the presence of God came in such a strong way. And um, he really began to deal with my heart about some stuff. And um, if I can just be completely honest and transparent, uh, I'm, I'm navigating how to uh, appropriate some of the stuff that he's saying through a new righteousness consciousness and not a justice consciousness. Okay, the, the, the concept that I want to share today, back in the day, would have been no problem. I mean, we'd, we'd be, you know, we would throw down. We would throw down about some stuff. And, and, and we may still do that today, but uh, it's, it's different. And, and so um, I really want to talk about a couple of themes and, and combine them, but with the idea of legacy. 
I feel like that's what the Lord is saying right now. And I feel like that um, we have to be super intentional about generations. And we have to we have to be so intentional about generations that we are willing to sacrifice some of our personal ambition on the altar so that generations to come will be able to function in what they're called to function in. It's really something that, that has been lacking specifically, let me say in the church that I came up in, the church that I came up in because we had an incorrect um, idea about eschatology. Now, listen, I'm not going to talk to you about eschatology today because I still may have some incorrect ideas about that, all right? So uh, I'm just telling you, that's not what I'm talking about. But a for sure incorrect eschatology that your great-great-grandma said he's coming at any time and he's still not here birthed something in us that did not give us the ability to have vision for generations. Whether we want to accept that or not in the church is what happened. And we actually adopted a, a doctrine of escapism that everybody will be happy when we get over there. Ain't nobody going to be happy here. But when we get over there, we'll, we'll, we'll understand it better by and by. I mean, I could go on for days and, and talk to you about the songs and the, the theology that's been written about these things. And in my own life, not appropriating a correct um, importance on what is to come. If you ask me right now what I'm dreaming about, I, I guarantee it would shock you. I guarantee I'm not dreaming about finding a church. Especially after last week, I'm not dreaming about finding a church. Is it good to have a father come in here and set some, set some things straight? I told him, I said, listen, I am so thankful that you came and admitted, you know, I've probably been pouting a little bit. I'm not dreaming about that. I'm dreaming about legacy for my children. I'm dreaming about legacy for your children. I'm dreaming about creating a place where your children, your grandchildren will have an expression of the presence of God that we have paved a way for, but they take it farther than we've ever gone. That's what I'm dreaming about. Personally, I'm dreaming about what we call our legacy lodge. That's what I'm dreaming about. We're going to have a place with multiple acres, and every year, my family, regardless of where the Lord takes us, we're going to be able to come together. These are the things I'm dreaming about. You say, well, is that ministry? Is that saving the lost? Absolutely. It's generational legacy, and that's what I'm dreaming about right now. And so I want to talk to you about some of that, and um, I'm going to read, like I said, I'm going to read a story from history. It will be familiar to some of you because I've, I've uh, touched on this before, but um, I just think it bears repeating. So let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just ask that you would speak to us today, that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear you And let us know what you want us to do with it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 6. <clears throat> Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. 
and the Canaanites were then in the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, your, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Now, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to focus from Genesis 12, 6 all the way down to Genesis 13, 4, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there in, in just a moment. We, we may or may not read all of that. Um, I, I want you to listen to the language that God begins to use with Abram. He, uh, if you read just a few verses above, the Lord is speaking to him, and he immediately begins to speak generationally, but he talks to him about leaving his land to go to a country he will show him and that he would make him a great nation that he would make him a great nation um one, one of the things that i feel like uh we may have forfeited because of uh well whatever who knows i just feel like we forfeited the idea that we are supposed to make disciples of nations not just disciples in nations and when god begins to talk to abraham he doesn't say i'm going to have you go and you're going to mingle with these people and you know you'll get to live there and they'll live there and you'll have to share with them and he said no 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 he said i'm going to send your descendants to this land and i'm going to make you a great nation now you have to understand this this is 75 years into abraham's life he and Sarah have no child. They have no legacy to this point, according to Hebrew culture. At 75 years old, the Lord begins to talk to him about making him a great nation. And he says, to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. <clears throat> this was enough. That language, that conversation with God was enough for Abram to believe and respond because he heard with generational ears and responded correctly. He responded correctly. It's interesting to me that not only does he hear the word of the Lord, he hears about generational things, and then he immediately goes and builds an altar at this place called Shechem. Interesting. Uh, one, one theologian said this. I love this. He said the rearing of an altar in the land was in fact a form of taking possession of it on the ground of a right secured to exercise his faith. So here's what happened. He hears the word of the Lord with no hesitation, leaves his home, his family, his country to search for a country that the Lord would show him because he's going to make him a great nation. He doesn't give him a GPS. He doesn't give him a map. He says, "This is. I want you to go this direction. He hears that, immediately follows the word, gets to the place where the Lord has, has told him to go in this moment, and he immediately builds an altar. He immediately builds an altar. I want to ask you today, is the thought, just the thought, is just the thought of another generation enough to make you make some adjustments now that will affect them in years to come? Is that enough? I know, yeah, it is. And here we are, we're there. But tomorrow, are you going to make adjustments so that your kids, your grandkids will have a different life than you do. I am, Rebecca and I are trying to even make adjustments in our finances because we understand that a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children. And so what, what does your spending habits look like? 
Let's just be practical. What, 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 what does your devotional habits look like? Do they know what it is to hear you pray? Do they know what it is to see you in his word? Do they know what it is to see you love out loud? And I'm just wondering, this is so amazing to me that God comes to Abraham who has no children, speaks to him about legacy. He appropriates enough faith that I'm going to leave immediately and I'm going to go do what you have asked me to do. And not only am I going to do that, I'm going to build an altar, which in this time told them, I believe exactly what the Lord has says, and I'm willing to make the adjustments necessary for my descendants to come. It's really, it's, it's uh, another theologian read this or said this and I read it and I was like, ooh, that, that kind of hurts. It, it really does. Those of you that have been in church for a while, you'll appreciate this. He said, it's often said of Abraham and the patriarchs, they built altars to the Lord. It's never said they built houses for themselves. They built altars to the Lord. What is an altar? It's a place where something has to die. I remember a few years ago, we were doing the first base camp, and we were, man, we were in a zone talking about the Lord doing some stuff, and we got to this particular night, and it was good, and, and it was well-received, but it was, man, it was a difficult thing, because we started talking about the fact that sometimes your dream has to die. See, nothing can really live unless it first dies and goes into the ground, right, as a seed. And so we started talking about dreams and ambitions that die, not because they're really dead, but because in God's view, things that are dead most of the time are just sleeping. You remember that's what, that's what was going on with Jairus' daughter. That's what was going on with Lazarus. They, they were just sleeping. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, are, are we at a place where we're willing to, to build some altars where things can die so that in generations to come, something greater could actually live and take its place? Is the thought of another generation enough for you to make adjustments now that will affect them in years to come? So he gets this word, okay? I'm, I'm going to give you the rest of the context. He, he, he gets this word from God. He immediately follows. He goes, if you read the story, then there's a famine in the land. Isn't that just how it works? Seriously. That's just how it works, right? You hear the word of the Lord. Man, I got all the faith necessary. I'm building an altar. We're doing this thing. Generations are coming. I'm 75 years old. Don't have any kids, but my goodness, I heard the word of the Lord. And here we go. We're doing it. And now, boom, a famine comes. A famine. I'm hungry. It's not just like you said, Lord, where's the generations? I'm not getting any younger. The clock's ticking, right? Right? What, what are you doing? I know I've got a word of the Lord over my life. I know that you've spoken and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to prophesy to nations and I'm going to be a voice to nations. And How many people in here have gotten that prophecy? Seriously. And how many nations have you spoken to? I'm not saying it's not over some of you. Please, don't, please hear me. I'm saying are we at a place where we can steward the word? Because what if you're going to pro prophesy to nations is really the seed that's on the inside of you that would prophesy to nations? Are you okay with that or do you have to be the one? So Abraham, Abraham is, man, Abraham is, is building an altar. He's got faith, and then boom, a famine comes. A famine comes. They're going to Egypt. I just keep seeing this shadow going over me right here. I don't feel like it's healing anybody. There ain't no shadow that's healing anything right now. Hallelujah. So he goes, he goes to Egypt, and here's, here's something that's really interesting. 
you want me to tell you a story? I had a bird real quick. Listen, y'all thinking of the bird anyway. Let me just talk to you about it. You're, talk, you're thinking about the bird. You're not thinking about Abraham and his altar and what we could do. Let's just be real. This bird is dive bombing every one of us. So I come in my house one day, and at this time, I only have a boxer. Her name's Daisy, best dog I've ever had. She's amazing. I come in, and there's a starling just like this, which, by the way, my grandfather said starlings are good for nothing. I don't know what that means, but he's smarter than I am. So anyway, I know they're good for something. Every time I say that, Rebecca's like, no, God created them. They're good for something. I said, I know they are. You're right. But So I come in the house, and all of a sudden, this bird starts dive bombing. Listen, I wish y'all could have seen me. I wish there would have been a camera. I'm talking, but I was like, ah, you know, all over the house. Well, then Daisy gets out and she's going nuts, rawr, 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 you know, climbing the walls, trying to get to this bird. And I'm like, what am I going to do to get this bird? And I open the door and I'm like, this bird is not, this bird was dumb enough to come in my house. It is not going to be smart enough to go out this door. And so uh, all of you who know that, that I'm a hunter, uh, uh, I, I am definitely not uh uh, I don't work for PETA is what I'm trying to say. So I just want, I, I just want to give that, I want to give that disclaimer. Yeah. And so I'm like, how am I going to do this? And then I remember I have a tennis racket. Oh yeah. I'm talking about, I became Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, all of them in one. That bird came around. I swung and missed. And I was like, oh my goodness. It came around the next time though, I swung and I did not miss. Wham! I mean, whop, like that, right there on the ground. And Daisy gets over it, and she's like, I did this. I'm like, Man, you did. I'm going to hit you with this racket. So I, here's what I do. I pick it up with my racket because I'm not, I'm a hunter. I'm not trying to touch this bird, though. I pick it up with the racket, take it outside, set it down. It shakes its head and flies off. Do you know about three days later that joker came back in my house through the drive-in, that was on the second story, on the side of the house. It, it didn't fly away the second time. <laughs> Let's just say I had worked on my serve a little bit. <laughs> All right. Right, so next week, bring your tennis racket. <laughs> We're going to have tennis racket worship. Okay. Are y'all okay? The anointing has not left the building? All right. All right. I think it may have, just be honest, just be real honest. I think it may have. I'm joking. I'm joking. Okay. Let me get through this. He goes into Egypt and he tells Sarah, his bride, he says, listen, you're beautiful. You're beautiful and they're going to want you. You're my bride. You're beautiful and they're going to want you. What a, I mean, he is not husband of the year. I want you to act like you're my sister. So they don't kill me to take you. So in other words, I'm just going to give you to them, right? I've got a word. I've built an altar. I'm thinking about generations. But somehow I'm willing to sacrifice the security of the bride to save face. How you respond in the face of famine, how do you respond in the face of famine, or how do you respond when it doesn't look like you want it to? How do you respond to the word of the Lord when it doesn't look like you want it to? How do you respond to the word of the Lord when you haven't prophesied yet to nations? How do you, 
How do you respond to the word of the Lord when you haven't seen your ministry fulfilled in the place that you thought it would be? How do you respond when, when the business decision doesn't work out? How do you respond when the spouse doesn't uh, treat you the way you want them to all the time? How do you respond when the kid doesn't respond the way that you want them to? What, what, what does that look like? Egypt always wants to make you conform to the culture. It always makes you want to conform to their culture. Remember what happened to the children of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt? Their names were taken. They were given identity by the Egyptians. Their heritage was taken. Their religion was taken. Their, 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 their worship was taken. Why? Because Egypt always wants you to conform to what they want. And here, here's what I want to tell you. I, I fear sometimes that in the body of Christ that we have sacrificed the security of the bride to save face for a corrupt culture. Hey, hallelujah, right? I wonder, have we sacrificed the security of the bride? Have we attempted to change what the bride is supposed to look like so that we could fit what the culture would want it to be? I wonder, have we attempted to rip the identity of the bride away? Have we attempted to rip the identity of the bride away from us, away from what it's supposed to be so that we can match the corrupt culture that's forever changing. Abraham does this. He's not even Abraham yet, he's Abram. Abram does this. He says, I need you to tell. I've got a word from the Lord, but I'm finna lie right now <laughs> that you are my sister. Word from the Lord. Listen, we're gonna have, <laughs> we're gonna have generations. Now, maybe some of them be named little Pharaoh. It's funny, but has it happened? How many generations do we have in the church that really don't know the voice of God? They've got part of it, but don't have it all. What, how many generations do we have in the church that has no idea what it is to lay hands on sick people and see them get healed? How many generations do we have in the church that has no idea what it is to pray in tongues, that has no idea what it is to see the gifts experienced? Let me ask you, how often do you do that? Is it only in the corporate setting where you feel the gifts of the Spirit, where you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, or are you living your life every Every day submitted to the will of the Father and the word that he has given you at first. I'm telling you, Abraham decides, even though I have a word from the Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice the security of the bride to match this corrupt culture because I need to save face and they don't need to kill me. As a matter of fact, he may have been thinking, this is just theory, he may have been thinking, man, the promise is going to come through me and Sarah may not be the one I need, so I'm going to let her go. Right? That's why. Never mind. How you respond in the face of famine speaks to what you think about generations to come. How you respond in the face of adversity speaks to generations to come. Here's what I want to tell you this is good news. The bride cannot be anything but the bride. 
The bride cannot be anything but the bride. Regardless of what the culture dictates, we have a mandate to be a real expression of the bride in Louisville, Kentucky. She goes, and Pharaoh is absolutely going to take her because she's beautiful. The Lord sends plagues. She can't change her identity to say, I'm a sister. It somehow comes out that she's the bride. He goes and says, what have you done to me? You've tried to do this. He's like, go on, get out of here. He doesn't kill him. He just tells him to leave, right? Listen, I want to tell you, I want to, I want to give you some reassurance. Regardless of what you're looking at right now, the bride can't be anything but the bride. There's going to be a real bride, and there's going to be a real bride that is without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And I'm, I'm telling you that when you see the bride and you see racism, you don't see the real bride. When you see the bride and you see things that don't line up with Scripture, you're not looking at the real bride. And I know the world's looking at that, and they're saying, oh, well, if you're this, I don't want to be a part. And if you're this, we don't want to be a part. I, I hear what you're saying. But he said, I'm coming back for a bride that is without spot, wrinkle or blemish. And so when we see that expression of the bride, that's when we can start talking about, hey, he's coming right now. It's not there yet. But the bride can't be anything but the bride for real. And here's the thing. God's not going to change what he's looking for in a bride just for us to match the culture. And so Abram is like, oh, oh, yeah. Here's the very next thing that blows my mind. If we go down to chapter 13, and we read this. He, he has just lied to Pharaoh. He has just sacrificed the security of the bride. And this is the next scripture that comes. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had with Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich. Abram was very rich. Listen. Hot, hot. My justice consciousness doesn't know how to appropriate that scripture. Hold up. Father Abraham, patriarch, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the very first one named. You're telling me you just lied like a rug. You went in and acted like the promise couldn't happen unless you helped it out on more than one occasion, shall I say that? On more than one occasion. You give your wife and act like she's your sister because you want to change the identity of the bride to match the corrupt culture. And the very next thing that Moses writes about Abraham, because he's the one who wrote Genesis, y'all know that, right? The very next thing he writes about him is he was very rich. <laughs> he left Egypt. He left all that mess with his family and his wife. First of all, first of all, yeah, I, I'm just going to tell you, if I ask her to be my sister so that somebody else can take her, I may be leaving Egypt, but she ain't leaving with me. I can guarantee you that. You understand what I'm saying? He leaves with his family and his wife. And then, and he was very rich. We don't know how to appropriate that because we think that we've got to pay for everything that we did wrong. We think that we've got to make up for everything that we missed. And now I'm going to suffer. And I'm, I'm, listen, I so, I so connect with the doctrine of suffering because that's where I am. And this is what's happening. And I know, no, 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 no. Give me this promise right here that even if I mess up and I go away, that I'm able to leave. And then somebody can write about me. And he was very rich. His family went with him. His wife was with him. I'm telling you that there's something the Lord is trying to teach us about our obedience to his word. He knows you're human. And watch this. His will makes room for human error. 
I know religion doesn't let you believe that. I know religion says that, no, you've got to do everything perfect and you've got to do everything right and you've got to get this. But I'm telling you, his will makes room for human error. And even though he knows that I get in human error, he comes chasing after me. He comes chasing after me. This story is so amazing to me. It's, it's really amazing. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Now, I jump back up to chapter 12. He built an altar, verse 7, to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. He went on his journey from the south, chapter 13, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar that he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. What did he do? He went back to his first altar. He went back to his first altar where he had heard the word of the Lord, where he had established, I believe what you're saying. He went back to the altar. And here's what I want to tell you. Don't forget the place of your first altar. I don't care if it's famine. I don't care if it's blessing that leads you back. But don't forget the place that you first established that you trust the name of the Lord. Do not forget those encounters that are on you. People get on Peter all the time because he was so just wild. I mean, his mouth was just, you know, I'm going to say whatever. I'm going to cut people's ears off. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's who Peter was. He denied Jesus. I know we do that. Jesus restored him, though. He restored him. He asked him three times, do you love me? It was a restoration process that was happening. But here's what has always just really got me about this story of Peter. He says this, after Jesus has been crucified, he looks at the disciples. They're waiting for Peter to say something because they know he's going to. They know he's going to. Here we go. Here we go. And this is what Peter says. I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Hold, hold up, dude. Hold up. You just dropped a bomb on this little girl and cussed her out about saying whether or not you know Jesus. We watched him die. You ran off. When you heard the rooster crow, you ran off because you knew Jesus had pegged you. You knew that you were gonna, that you denied him. You ran off, and now here you go, and I'm coming to hear from you how you're going to lead us. You're going to tell us what to do. What are we doing? And you tell me you're going fishing. This is my conviction. This is my conviction. I believe that he was going back to the place that he first met the master. I believe that he was going back to the place where he first encountered that voice that said, hey, throw it on the other side. Throw it on the other side. We've been fishing all night long. I understand, but throw it on the other side. I believe he's going back to the place where he encountered the Lord walking on the water. And he says, if it's you, let me come to you. And he, I, I believe that he went back to this place of encounter. And I'm going to tell you this. I think that we take for granted the first altar sometimes. 
I think that we take for granted the encounters that we've had. How can you say that? Because we live our lives like we take it for granted. We live our lives like we take for granted the encounters that we've had as if we can just go through life and it's normal and everything's fine and I'm going to do a little bit of Jesus on the weekend. Listen, I understand that there are places and that's what happens, but I'm telling you that's not how this family rolls. I'm telling you there's something that is gripping our hearts to say every single day, I don't want to underachieve because of my connection with him. He goes back to his first altar. Abraham goes back to his first altar. He goes back to the place to where I knew right here, I knew, I knew that this is what you said. I knew that you had put generations in my heart. Come on, what is it for you? What is it for you? What's the place that you remember? I remember being 18 years old and laying on my face in my bedroom and telling the Lord, if this is really what you want, it's what I'll do. I remember laying in the middle of an aisle at Solid Rock Church of God. I just graduated from high school and I heard the Lord and I felt the call of God on my life like I'd never had. It wasn't from Papa and it wasn't from Dad and it wasn't from Mom. It wasn't from anyone else. It was from the Lord. And I had a moment there and I'll never, ever forget it. I could go through a list. I remember laying on the floor in Hamilton, Alabama and hearing a sound like a train. We're in a, a, a room and there's no train tracks near us and Lou Engel is on the other line on the phone talking from Mount Carmel about rain coming and I hear this sound of a train that comes through the place. It was a marking moment. It's where I knew that there was more and this is what Abraham did. He went back to the place where he met the Lord the first time. He went back to the place regardless of trying to sacrifice the identity of the bride, regardless of trying to make the promise happen in and of himself. He goes back to the place of encounter. What is your place of encounter? What is it? What is it? Some of you, it's college. Some of you, it's Bible college. Some of you, some of you, it may, there may have been one that happened just a few years ago. What is the place? I want to know, is he still as worthy now as he was then when he spoke to you? Man, I can't get off of Revelation 2 and Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. I cannot get off. I think about it every single day. I, have, I just bought a book the other day. I'm not kidding you. It's this thick, and it's about the first two and a half chapters of Revelation. That's all it's about. I can't get off of this idea of Ephesus that he said, I have this against you. You lost your first love. And what he really said is, you don't love me as passionately as you did at first. You're okay with normal. You're okay with normal. You're okay with your marriage being normal. You're okay with your kids being normal. You're okay with sickness being a normal part of your life. That's what he's telling Ephesus. You're okay. He said, come back. He said, look how far you've fallen. I know that, you, I, I know that you're doing the works for me. I know that. But look how far you've fallen. What is he talking about? You don't love me like you did at first. You don't love me like you did at first. Abraham had to face that, and he goes back to the altar. He goes back to his first altar where the Lord speaks to him about generations. <sighs> There's another story in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob's fleeing Esau. 
he goes, he has a dream. You know this story, right? He takes a rock, has a dream, lays his head down. He, he sees a ladder and he sees angels ascending in D7. He, he, he wakes up and he said, the Lord was here and I didn't even know it. The Lord was here and I didn't even know it. We're just two generations removed from Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob can say, the Lord was here and I didn't even know it. He said, surely this is the gate of heaven. And what's he do? He builds an altar. He builds an altar at Bethel. You go to Genesis 35, you find out that his family's been living, Jacob's family, the patriarch, his family, is now serving other gods. They're serving other idols. But a tragedy happens to his daughter. A tragedy happens to the next generation, and it gets Jacob's attention. And he returns to Bethel. He goes back to the first altar. He goes back to the place where he saw the gate of heaven, where he saw the angels ascending and descending. He says, I've got to go back. He says, give me the foreign gods. He takes them all. Give them all here. He said, give them here. He said, give them earrings too. Listen. Those of you wearing them earrings, them ear bobs. It's a joke. Y'all got to smile. I mean, y'all looking at me like this. Like y'all scared I'm going to do something. I got to, my goodness. He says, give me everything. Hey, listen, they used to build sermons around that right there. Give me them earrings. I know how to do it. <clears throat> he says, give me the foreign gods. We're going back to Bethel. He goes back to the first altar. Now, here's something interesting that's ha that happens. Between Genesis 28 and Genesis 35, he encounters this place called Shechem. He encounters this place where Abraham had built an altar. He encounters this place where Abraham had built an altar. It's a really amazing story. If you watch Jacob, he goes to Bethel. He goes to this place where Abraham built an altar. He then wrestles with God, which is interesting. At this point, that's where God changes his name. You know that, right? <clears throat> if you read the story in Genesis 35 of returning to Bethel, it's where God really solidifies that identity because evidently Jacob wasn't living like that. He gives him Israel in the wrestling match, but he solidifies it at the altar of Bethel. But he goes to this place between the two encounters, there's a journey to the place of Shechem where Abram built the altar. Here's what he has to do. He has to repurchase the land. Now, that's interesting. That was Abraham's land. The Lord gave it to him. But Jacob has to go back and purchase the land There's something to be said about returning to the altars of previous generations. There's something to be said of returning to the altars that previous generations have built to connect the past that they paid for and we become the answer to their prayer. There's something about that. But here's what I want to say. It's actually an insult to that generation to continue to follow the same paths and never take more territory for the kingdom. It's an insult to my parenting if my kids have to deal with the same junk that I deal with or have dealt with. It's an insult. 
We, we cannot, listen, I, I don't know if you all understand how much I have accepted and functioned in the mantle of a pioneer, understanding that there's a lot of time in my ministry and in our life, she can attest to this, where we have seen nothing but jungle in front of us and all we had was a machete and we were okay, we were ready to go. Spiritually, even in, in our marriage, even, even with our kids, there, were, there was new territory that had to be taken. Here's what I'm telling you. It's, it's, it's an insult for the generations to come behind me who would have to clear the same path that I walked on. I'm not saying that they won't go further. They will. I'm not saying that there won't be another jungle that they're fa they'll face. They will. But if they had to clear the same path that I walked on, it's an insult to the way that I cleared it. There's something to be said about returning to the altars of previous generations. I'm telling you, I am so grateful for my heritage. I'm so grateful for what the Lord has brought throughout my life. But it would be an insult to them for me to have to continue to do the same things that they want to do. And I'm telling you, in religion, most often you see siblings that are connected and you don't see fathers that are connected. And siblings say stuff like this, you've got to pay your dues and you've got to do it worked for me and so it's going to work for you. And I'm telling you, I don't want to look at my kids and say, hey, you got to pay your dues. It worked for me. I want to tell them, hey, here's inheritance, and this is what I've learned, and this is how we did it, and you don't have to go through the same path over and over and over again. I want to be a father and not a sibling. Siblings are always harder on each other than parents. He goes back and he buys the altar. He buys the land, rather. He buys the land. Then he returns to his first altar. He buys the land at Shechem and then returns to his first altar. <clears throat> I'm going to go to John 4. You can go there. I'm not going to read it just yet. But I just want to get there. I'm almost done. You okay? Everybody okay? I'm going to read you a story. It's kind of lengthy, but I really think that it bears hearing today. God told Abraham to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. He spoke to him in generational language. Do you know Abraham was so solidified in that that he never even received the promise? Read the book of Hebrews. They did not obtain the promise. But there were ones that came after him that did. As a matter of fact, <laughs> he conquers a nation. He sees this person of eternal significance that comes from the distance. We don't know anything about Melchizedek, but he sees Melchizedek. He walks out to him and understands the significance, and he tithes a tenth of everything that he had won in the war to Melchizedek. It is later stated in Hebrews that Levi, who would have been his great-great-grandson, that he paid tithe according to Levi's account because of what he did to Melchizedek. Listen, guys, God thinks generationally. I know that we get stuck with what's right here, and we get stopped with what's right here, and we focus on that, but he thinks generationally. That's why the enemy always works in the natural to affect the spiritual, but God always works in the spiritual to affect the natural. He never does that in reverse. 
All right. <clears throat> During the reign of Emperor Nero <clears throat> in the first century, excessive cruelty was displayed against Christians. St. Fotini lived in Carthage with her younger son, Joseph. Her eldest son, Victor, fought bravely in the Roman army against the barbarians and was appointed military commander in the city of Italia in Asia Minor. Later, Nero called him to Italy to arrest and punish Christians. Sebastian, an official in Italy, said to Victor, I know that you and your mother and your brother are followers of Christ. As a friend, I advise you to submit to the will of the emperor. If you inform on any Christians, you will receive their wealth. I shall write to your mother and brother, asking them not to preach Christ in public. Let them practice their faith in secret. Victor replied, I want to be a preacher of Christianity, like my mother and brother. Sebastian said, Oh, Victor, we all know what woes await you, your mother and brother. Then Sebastian suddenly felt a sharp pain in his eyes. He was dumbfounded, and his face was somber. For three days, Sebastian lay there blind without uttering a word. On the fourth day, he declared, The God of the Christians is the only true God. St. Victor asked why Sebastian had suddenly changed his mind. Sebastian replied, because Christ is calling me. Soon he was baptized and immediately regained his sight. St. Sebastian's servants, after witnessing the miracle, were also baptized. These were people in Nero's army, okay? Reports of this reached Nero. He commanded that the Christians be brought to him at Rome. The Lord himself appeared to the confessors and said, Fear not, for I am with you. Nero and all who serve him will be vanquished. The Lord said to Victor, From this day forward, your name will be Photinus, because through you many will be enlightened and will believe in me. The Lord then told the Christians to strengthen and encourage Sebastian to persevere until the end. All these things and even future events were revealed to St. Photini. She left Carthage in the company of several Christians and joined the confessors in Rome. At Rome, Emperor Nero ordered the saints to be brought before him, and he asked them whether they truly believe in Christ. All the confessors refused to renounce the Savior. The emperor then gave orders to smash the martyrs' fingers to smash their finger joints. During the tortures, the confessors felt no pain and their hands remained unharmed. Nero ordered that St. Sebastian, Photinus, and Joseph be blinded and locked up in prison. And St. Photini and her five sisters, Anatola, Fota, Photus, Paraskeva, and Kiriaki, were sent to the imperial court under the supervision of Nero's daughter, Domina. St. Photini converted both Domina and her servants to Christ. She also converted a sorcerer who had been brought, uh, who had who had brought her poisoned food that was meant to kill her. Three years passed. Three years passed, and Nero sent to the prison for one of his servants who had been locked up. The messengers reported to him that Saint Sebastian, Photinus, and Joseph, who had been blinded, had completely recovered, and that people were visiting them to hear their preaching. Indeed, the whole prison had been transformed into a bright and fragrant place where God was glorified. Nero then gave orders to crucify the saints and to beat their naked bodies with straps. On the fourth day, the emperor sent 
servants to see where the mart- were the martyrs still alive. Approaching the place of the tortures, the servants fell blind. An angel of the Lord freed the martyrs from their crosses and healed them. The saints took pity on the blinded servants and restored their sight by the prayers of the Lord. Those who were healed came to believe in Christ and were soon baptized. In rage, Nero gave orders to fillet the skin from St. Fotini and to throw her down in a well. Sebastian, Photinus, and Joseph had their legs cut off and they were thrown to dogs and had their skin filleted off. The sisters of Fotini also suffered terrible torments. An expert in cruelty, the emperor readied the fiercest execution for St. Photus. They tied her by the feet to the tops of two bent over trees. When the ropes were cut, the trees sprang upright and tore the martyr apart. The emperor ordered the others beheaded. St. Fotini was removed from the well and locked up in prison for 20 days. After this, Nero had St. Fotini brought to him and asked if she would now relent and offer sacrifice to the idols. St. Fotini spat in his face and laughing at him said, Oh, you impious of the blind, you profligate and stupid man. Do you think me so deluded that I would consent to renounce my Lord Christ and instead offer a sacrifice to idols as blind as you? Hearing such words, Nero gave orders to throw St. Fotini down a well. There she surrendered her soul to God in the year of 66. St. Fotini lived in first century Palestine. She was a Samaritan woman who Christ visited at the well, asking her for water. It was she who accepted the living water offered to her by Christ himself after repenting from her many sins. She went and told her townspeople that she had met the Christ. For this, she sometimes is recognized as the first to proclaim the gospel of Christ. She converted her five sisters and her two sons They all became tireless evangelists for Christ. The apostles of Christ baptized her and gave her the name Fotini, which means the enlightened one. She's remembered by the church as a holy martyr and equal to the apostles. After Peter and Paul were martyred, St. Fotini and her family left their homeland of Sychar in Samaria to travel to Carthage to proclaim the gospel of Christ there. I want to read something to you out of John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he... Let me see if that's where I want to be. Yeah, that's fine. I'm at verse 1 if you're following. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and had baptized more disciples than John, though he himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jacob's well, Sychar, it's the place, Shechem, that was Abraham's first altar that he had to go back and buy a few years later. The Samaritans were half Jews, half Gentiles. They were looked at 
as dogs. They were looked at as people who were less than the Jewish people. But Jesus said, I love what the King James says, I must needs go to Samaria. He said, I'm bound by something to go to Samaria. What was he doing? He was fulfilling the promise of God to Abraham who said, your descendants will be as the sands of the sea. And he meets this woman who becomes quite possibly the greatest evangelist of the New Testament because of the promise hundreds and even thousands of years prior that the Lord had given to Abram. I'm telling you, what you do today matters for the generations to come. This is what God had in mind when he told Abram that he would give his descendants the land. And there he built an altar. I don't know where you're at in a lot of cases. I don't, I don't know exactly where you are in your relationship with God. I know what I'm sensing. I know what I'm feeling. And I'm telling you, he's calling us to go back to our first altar. He's calling us to go back with the passion and fervor that we had when we met him at first. When he gave you the promise before life came and, and, and hit you upside the head, before all of the pain, before all of this junk that you had to go through that has made you wonder, did he really speak to me? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's generations that are waiting to hear your story. There are generations that are waiting to hear of your freedom, Patricia. There are generations that are waiting to hear the story. And they're going to tell stories and they're going to say she worshipped and she danced like nobody else. And it was because she had a testimony of where the Lord had brought him, brought her from. There are generations that are waiting, man. There's generations that are waiting. There's generations that are waiting to hear your story, Tanya. There's generations, your grandkids... They're going to look back and they say, this is how Mamma Tanya did it. This is how she prayed. They're waiting, guys. They're waiting. All, all of you young parents that are in here, I'm telling you, you, you have no idea. You have no idea what it is that he's wanting to do with you in this moment. They're going to tell they're going to tell. Listen, there are some of you, I love the diversity of our house. I love the diversity. And there's some of you who are not even from this country, but because of what you experience here is going to travel to other countries around the world and maybe your place of origin. And they're going to hear, hey, this is what they did. This is how they brought freedom to our family. This is how they brought the presence of God into our family. You have no idea. You have no idea. Don't sabotage it by taking it for granted. Listen, that's the only way it happens. Don't sabotage it by taking it for granted. What does he want to do with you? What does he want to do with you? I could go through this room. I know most of you well enough. I could go through this room, and I know some of the hell that you've been through, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, none of that is going to compare to what the generations are going to declare about the goodness of the Lord in your life. 
He went back to his first altar. Jacob went back to his first altar. The place of encounter where I met him the first time. Peter had to go back and do what he was doing when he met him the first time. I'm telling you, he's calling us. He's asking us. He's asking us, can you stop looking at the peripheral? Can you stop looking at everything that's around you and everything that's right in front of you? And can you see for generations? Can you see for generations? You say, well, I don't have biological children. You have spiritual children. They're still going to write your story. Your story is a part of this family. The history books one day are going to declare that there was a company. There was a company in Louisville that made adjustments so that we could have the freedom that we have now. They prayed prayers that echo throughout eternity. What's your first altar? What is your first altar? Where's the place that you heard him the first time and you were willing to go? Just put some soft instrumental music on for me. Let's just close our eyes a moment. Father, I want you to give us grace to return to our first altar. I want you to give us grace to return to that place at first. Where we felt you. Where you called us. Where there was no doubt where we took the time to build an altar and establish the faith that we were appropriating on that promise. God, what is it that you're saying to us in this moment? What is it that you're releasing to us in this moment? Let it never be said again that there's a generation who did not know the Lord. Give us eyes for legacy. Give us eyes for generational legacy. Give us eyes. Release the power of the Holy Spirit. Release hunger, God. Release hunger. Release intercessors for generations. Three generations to come, God. Release intercessors for generations that are praying for three generations to come. That are prophesying, that are declaring the words of the Lord. God, I pray that you would raise up songs out of this house, God, that are not just for now, but that they would speak into the future for three and four and five generations to come. 
that we would begin to prophesy what we want to see in those generations to come. Jesus, come on, let's just stand. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast from Awakening Church. You can find us online at awakeningky.com.